Good morning. Thoughts. Attitudes. Actions. In order to change our actions, we need to change our attitudes. In order to change our attitudes, we've got to change our thoughts. Thoughts are the conceptions that we have of God. We might be aware of them or not. Attitudes are our responses to God based on our thoughts. Actions are the evidence in our lives of the foundation of our thoughts and attitudes. Thoughts, attitudes, and actions. As we think about the will of God, then it shouldn't surprise us to discover that experiencing God's will is directly related to our thoughts. It shouldn't surprise us then that experiencing God's will is directly related to our thoughts. In order to experience the will of God, we need to change our thoughts about God. Look what it says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. We're working our way through Romans 12. As we think about the will of God, it's a pivotal chapter. Having verses, chapters 1 through 11 is talked about theology, which is right thinking. And chapters 12 on, we'll talk about orthopraxy, right acting. And right at the fulcrum, right at that place that separates one from another, we find out about the will of God and thoughts, attitudes, and actions. Paul writes, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The verse advertises an opportunity that I think that we would at one level like to be able to take advantage of, um, to be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. To test and approve means to validate by personal experience. It means to experiencing God's will, and because you experience it, be in a place to comment on it. Be in a place to be able to say, yeah, I know what God's will is because I've experienced it. And that's what it advertises, the possibility that you and me, we could experience God's will. It goes on to clarify the conditions that would put us in a place where we can do so. And there are some conditions to experiencing God's will. It's not something that just happens. The will of God at one level is going to be accomplished in the world and in everyone. At another level, to experience his good, pleasing, and perfect will, there are conditions. There are some things that we need to do, and the text will clarify those things. And what we'll find, nonconformity, nonconformity is directly related to experiencing the will of God. If you want to experience the will of God, you've got to go against the flow at one level. And we'll talk about in what way, Mike. Um, it says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. It's talking about nonconformity. Nonconformity is linked to experiencing God's will. It talks about transformation. 
and, you know, transformation. So let's say we take a caterpillar. Okay, We're going to transform this caterpillar into a butterfly. And what we're going to do, we'll take a wire and we'll, we'll draw that wire across midsection and tie it tight so it kind of bunches the caterpillar in half. Then we'll take some wings and tape these wings to the back of the butterfly. And then we'll stick antennae in its head. And, and then we'll launch that thing and it will drop like a stone because we haven't transformed anything. We've conformed it. We've changed it from the outside. We've squeezed it and manipulated it and pushed it together here and stretched it here. But we haven't transformed it. Transformation is what happens in a chrysalis where this caterpillar changes form from the inside out, ends up growing, changing, sprouting wings. That's what transformation is. And relative to us, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind or changing our thoughts. Changing our thoughts is the means whereby God will change you from the inside out. That's what the text is saying. And as God changes from the inside out. You will be a position at the end of your life to look back and, and to view the vista of life. You'll see many ups and downs. But at that time, you will breathe and say, especially on the far side when you get to be with him and you get to see how God has used you and how he's woven you into the tapestry of what he's doing. What does this mean to make our minds new? What thoughts do we need to make new? What thoughts do we need to change? That's the question that we're going to address this morning. And hopefully clarify. Why would we clarify that? Because we're interested in making our thoughts new. Why would we be interested in making our thoughts new? Because we want to experience God's will. And changing our thoughts is directly linked to experiencing his will, right? Let's, let's do some work. Let's review what we've learned about thoughts and attitudes and actions. I go changing your thoughts. It says in Luke chapter 19, it's a parable Jesus told. We're just going to take the end of it. We talked about it last week, but I want to remind us. Luke 19. Um, then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. Let me, let me tell you what happened. This, a man went away to be king. He was a man of noble birth, and so he was going to be installed as king and to come back and to rule over his subjects. And he had servants to which he gave ten, five, and one mina, some currency, and said, I want you to manage this and reproduce this. Do something with this money. So if I were to give you ten bucks apiece, and I would say, I want you to multiply this, you might do one of a number of things, but I would like for there to be more than $10, more than 5 and so multiply. And so he did that. And his servants, we'll see how they did. Two did really well. One didn't do that well. The servants served him, but then he had his subjects. The subjects were different from his servants. They're the ones that he would rule over, and they hated him. Some of them did. 
They sent a delegation after this guy saying, no, we don't want this guy to be our king. And Jesus gives us some insight because he wasn't just talking about somebody. He was talking about himself. And he was going to go to his father and be installed as king and come back. When Jesus came the first time, he was taking mild, looked upon a little child. When he comes the second time, he's going to be large and in charge. Not meek and humble. He'd be a king with a crown on his head. And the individuals who didn't want him to come back and be king, they had this beef with him. They made him wait. He made them wait. They thought he was going to bring the kingdom at once. Everything was going to change. He was going to throw over the Roman Empire, and he was going to install the Jewish king as the king over the empire, and their life was going to be fine. It didn't turn out that way. And, and because it didn't turn out that way, Jesus knew it wouldn't turn out that way. When he was hung on a cross, he knew what was going to happen. Somebody was going to say, we don't want this guy to be king. Somebody who dies on a Roman cross, find somebody else. Find somebody who can make a difference in my life now. I don't want this guy. Jesus knew what was going to happen. And he knew why people were going to hate him. And that's the story. So this guy goes and becomes king. And Jesus is talking about himself. And he comes back. And this is what it says. One servant said, I took the ten and I made more. Well done. One he gave five said, I invested the five, made more. Good job. And the third one. Luke 19. Then another servant said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. In fact, probably the way he said this is, Sir, here is your mina. Because he was afraid of this guy. Frightened him. He said, I was afraid of you. Because you are a hard man, you take out what you did not put in, reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words. You wicked servant, you knew, did you? I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in, reaping what I did not sow. Um, what are this guy's actions? Simple, right? Took the mina, put it in a cloth, Buried it. That's the action. But the action's based on the attitude. What was the attitude? I was afraid of you. I was afraid of you. I had the mina, the attitude, the action. Now what we need to get to, what's at the heart of it? The thought. What was the thought? You're a hard man. Try to get blood out of a rock. Take out what you don't put in. You reap what you didn't sow. The thought, the attitude, the action. And so here's how the master settles with him. What is he going to call attention to? And it's important to ask because Jesus is talking about himself, and he will be the judge. And what will he judge? Will he judge our actions? Will he judge our attitudes? Will he judge our thoughts? Look what this guy judges. Sir, the, the, the master says, you knew, did you, that I am a hard man? 
taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? I got a question. Did the master said, what in the world did you bury the mina for? Did he judge his action? Did he judge his attitude? Why are you petrified? Why are you shaking? Did he judge his attitude? What did he judge? Thought. That's a hard man. Is that right? Is that right? Is that what you think? I reap what I don't sow. Take out what I don't put in. I'll judge you by your own words. God judges thoughts. Hmm. And that's why, if we want to experience God's will, we've got to change our thoughts. Because changed thoughts lead to Thoughts are what we root our faith in. And thoughts lead to attitudes. Those are like the trunk of the tree. The thoughts are the roots that draw the things out of the ground. And the attitudes, it's like the trunk. It's like what ends up being the the juncture between the thought and the action is the attitude. And so now you know what's going to happen, what goes up there next. The action. Like a tree. And so the critical thing, would you agree? Right there. That's it. Because changed thoughts lead to right attitudes, lead to right actions. So we take care of, like what Thoreau said, for every thousand people whacking away at the leaves of evil, for every thousand people whacking away at the leaves of evil, there is one person striking at the root. You know, I'd like you to be consider. I'd like to encourage you to be, be one in a thousand. Strike at the place that counts. Thoughts. And that's what the text does. That's what Romans 12 says. Be transformed by changing your thoughts. And that's what the text will go on to to tell us. And so what are we supposed to do? Okay, change your thoughts. What are we supposed to think about? We're supposed to think about God. We're supposed to change our thoughts about God. Okay. How are we to change our thoughts about him? Look what it says in the top on Romans 12. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as living, holy, living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Change your thoughts. Think about that. That's what the text is telling us. In the, in the context, it, it's not throwing a question mark up there. It says, I urge you by God's mercy, present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices. Changing your thoughts means making room for the things that he's telling us we should think about. And what he's telling us to think about is God's mercy. Do you want to experience God's will? Do you want to be transformed? This is what you make room for, God's mercy. That's what. And so what does mercy mean in the context? We have a tendency to believe some things that make sense, but they don't make sense when you understand mercy. Look what it says. We believe that experience God's, experiencing God's will requires effort and desire. Would you agree with me? Would you agree? Experiencing God's will requires effort, desire, determination. Does it not? 
Uh-oh, you're saying, I don't know what I should say or not. I'm not going to say anything. Um, but Romans 9 says, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Wow. You know what? Experiencing God's will does not depend on your spiritual muscles. It doesn't depend on your desire or effort. Is that not what it says? It depends on God's mercy. Therefore, you can build up a bunch of spiritual muscles and try to be a spiritual he-man. And it, you know what you'll end up doing? Looking good. The appearance of wings on your back. You'll look somewhat like you're transformed. Maybe the right shape. You'll kind of look kind of like, but if you try to, if you try to ascend in any kind of spiritual height, you're going to drop just like that caterpillar did. We draw a string across its middle, tape wings on its back, through antenna in its head. It won't fly. You won't fly. How do you fly? Right there. Make room for God's mercy. That's what the text says. I urge you, therefore, in view of God's mercy, um, and know that um, desire and effort doesn't necessarily cut it. I, I, I included an, an article in here. I'm not going to read it. It talks about this passage from Romans 9, and it talks about why doesn't God accept desire and effort? Take that with you and read it. And it will give you some insight about, you know what it will do? Get this. It will do a good thing. And again, not because it's based on truth. It will change your thoughts. And if it changes your thoughts, what else will it change? Your attitude. Changes your attitude, what will it change? Your actions. That's the way it works. Thoughts, attitudes, actions. Um, we believe that experiencing God's will requires effort and desire. We also believe that disobedience disqualifies us from experiencing the will of God. Wouldn't you agree with me? Anybody who deals with disobedience cannot experience God's will, right? Right? I'm not going to say anything. I'm not sure what he's going to say. I'm shake my head. Yeah, he's going to go, no. If I say no, he'll say, yeah, I'm just going to sit here and not do anything. Good. Smart. Smart. <clears throat> It says in Romans 11, God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may curse them all. That's the reverse standard version. That's the reverse standard version. Um, God has bound all men, has snared all people in disobedience. Are you reading what I'm reading? Will you look at that? God catches all people in disobedience? so that he can wag the finger at them all? So he can judge them all? So he can tell them how pitiful you are? How much of a disappointment you are? He snares us in disobedience. You know why God snares us in disobedience? He catches us doing the things that we don't want to do and not doing the things we should do so that when God comes toward you, and he does, it's based on what? Mercy. So he snares you in disobedience so that when he reaches out to you, and he does, it's not about you. 
It's not about your, your desire or effort. It's not about your obedience. It's about his. I have a question for you. And I know the answer. If you made more room in your mind to think about God's mercy, what would happen? wouldn't be good, Mike. If I thought more about God's mercy, I wouldn't have his judgment hanging over my head. I would end up doing terrible things if I thought about his mercy. Really? Really? That is a lie. You know what will happen if you make room for God's mercy in your thoughts? It will transform you. And it would change your thoughts. And what else would change? Change your attitudes. What else would change? Change your actions. at his mercy. Ah, there we are. Talk about the love of God again. Um, the Bible is clear, though, isn't it? That love is the mark of a Christian. Would you agree with me? Jesus summed the commandments in love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What word is common to both of those commandments? Did you get it? Love. Love is obedience. So if you want to define obedience in one word, what is the word? Love. And in order to have your life more characterized by love, you need to make room in your mind for this and this. That's the way it works. Because changed thoughts lead to changed attitudes, lead to changed actions. And the thing that you make room for are thoughts about God. What about God? His mercy and his love. You make room for it, it will change you. Because it says it will. You will experience God's will. Again, not tomorrow. It takes time. It takes time. It takes six months to make a squash, maybe. hundred years to make an oak tree. What would you want to be? A squash for God? Oak tree for God. It takes time. And you know what? God has all the time in the world. God is not impatient, by the way. He does not need you to change by tomorrow. Because changing your thoughts takes time. But the change made by changed thoughts is real. It is heart-deep and long-lived. You can scare somebody into changing, can you not? Squeeze their behavior from the outside in, push here, prod there, squeeze there. And you know what kind of change you end up with? Skin deep and short-lived. It lasts for a little while, but then it's like a puff of smoke. And the problem with that is we tend to think that, well, I hope you're looking because I can't hold the spirituality much longer. I'm controlling my temper, but you've got to get a help me seeing this. 
And you know what God's looking at? He's not looking at your actions. He's not looking at your attitudes. He's looking at your thoughts. It says in verse very straightforward, 1 John 4, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out, drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Okay, here's the deal here. You say, Mike, what about obedience? Okay, let's talk about obedience. Obedience is love. And here's the deal. Love begets love. Say it with me. Love begets love. Okay, and here's another thing. Fear begets love, right? Fear does not beget love. Say that with me. Fear does not beget. It can't work. It can't work. I could frighten you into restricting this and doing that. It would be like drawing a string and taping wings and throwing antenna in the head of a caterpillar doesn't work. Love begets love. Fear doesn't beget love. That's what the passage says. Take it easy, Mike. Don't make him afraid. You're doing it. No fear in love. If we focus on God's judgment, I want you to listen to me. If you focus on God's judgment, you cannot focus on his love at the same time. And if you're not focusing on his love, you're not going to be transformed. You can't fear God's torment and grasp his love at the same time. The love of God has been a constant theme in the book of Romans. Look what it says in Romans. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You know what? If some of you are experts in different fields, and if I wanted to find out about something, I would come to you, David the banker, Randy knows about pharmaceuticals. If I wanted to know about banking or pharmaceuticals, I would ask them. And what they would prescribe as solving the problem would probably be correct, right? Because they know what they're talking about. Here's my question. What's your spiritual problem? I want you to think about it. What's your spiritual problem? You put the finger on the root of what your issue is. Here's another thing. Do you think God knows your problem? Would you agree with me that God dispatches the Holy Spirit to address the problem? Right? The Holy Spirit is God's remedy. So, if we can figure out what God is fixing, we can figure out what's broken, right? What does God dispatch the Holy Spirit to do? You look at it. He pours out what into our heart? I'm sorry, I know the question. I know the answer to this. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The problem is we're not focused enough on sin. Would you agree with me? Amen. Do you agree with me? We're not focused on sin enough. That's why God dispatches the Holy Spirit, and he's the one that says, nice job. 
Great. That was primo. That's what the Spirit does, right? Pours out condemnation into our heart because you need to be condemned, right? You need a spiritual punch in the nose. What does he pour out into your heart? Was it What? You mean, is that your problem? You need to make more room for that? Is that your problem? Is that your problem? Fix it. Change your thoughts. Because it will change your attitudes. It will change your actions. That God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see at the right, just right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, somebody might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to circle three words for me. You got a pencil, circle three words. The first word to circle is powerless. Verse 6, powerless, circle it. If you do, just if not, you can just think about it. Powerless. Powerless. It, unable to discharge or do what God would ask you to do. That's what powerless means. Uh, the second word, um, Christ died for the ungodly. Circle it, ungodly. That's a person who does not reflect in their behavior things that God would want. Ungodly. Okay, finally, sinners. The last word, while we were still sinners. Um, let me tell you when Christ, what Christ did for you. And we're going to experience communion shortly. And I want you to think about what he did. He died for you. Ah, but I want you to think about when he did it. When did Jesus die for you? That's easy, Mike. 2,000 years ago. Well, about 2,000, isn't it? No, that's not what I'm asking when did he die? Do you know when he died for you? When you were powerless and ungodly and a sinner. That's when he died for you. If he died for you when you were powerless, ungodly, and a sinner, if he expressed his love for you, is he going to withdraw his love? If you have a power shortage, is he going to withdraw his love? If you act in an ungodly manner, is he going to withdraw your love, his love if you start to act sinfully? Will he? What would happen if you believe that? It would change your thoughts about God. You would not be so frightened of him. And you know what that would do? It would change your attitude. You would start to, get this, actually like him. And maybe even grow to love him. And you know what? That would change your actions. You say, why would I want to do that? You want to experience God's will? His good, pleasing, and perfect will? You've got to change your thoughts in order to change your life. And it takes time. It takes time. Um, David was a man after God's own heart because of his gaze and his glance. Because of his gaze and his glance, uh, when uh, you know the story, he sinned. He, you know, I don't need to go into the story. We've talked about it before. He saw Bathsheba taking a bath on the rooftop. 
And so he was walking around on the rooftop, and he saw her, sent for her, and slept with her. She got pregnant. He, he called her husband so that he could, you know, and he messed it up. It was a cover-up, and what ended up happening, she ended up sending word to him, I'm pregnant. In Psalm 51, we have what David's conversation was with God. I want you to look what David said. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. David's got a gaze and David's got a glance. I would dare say, because of what happened, that it would be very easy for David to gaze at his sin. Would you agree with me? Murder, adultery, disobedience. You know what David does? This is amazing to me. It's amazing to me. Let this represent the love and mercy of God. He doesn't gaze at himself and glance at God's love and mercy. I hope you're not going to be too hard on me. Can't believe I did. I hope you. You know what David does? No joke. He gazes at God's love and mercy. Focuses on it. He won't let his eyes, his eyes stray, but he'll glance at his conduct. Again, he has to see what he's done. Because people remind him what he's done in the kingdom. This is not a big kingdom. He offed somebody. And he's going to, but you know what will happen when he's alone? He'll go right back here. He goes right back there. Focuses on God's love and mercy. Okay, now here's my question. Here's a guy who was an adulterer and a murderer. And he's looking at God's love and mercy. That's not right, is it? That's not right, is it? He needs to be in an accountability group, doesn't he? He focuses on God's love and mercy. What do you think happened? I can never get through this. He ends up finding out that the kid dies. And everybody is afraid to tell him because he's not been eating and he feels the grief. He sees what he's done. He sees what he's done. He's not turning a blind eye to it. He sees it. But he sees this. And he focuses here. And um, then he gets up. And he worships God. Does he gets up, eats, worships God, and then David comforted his wife Bathsheba in Second Samuel twelve. And he went to her. And lay with her. She gave birth to a son. And they named him Solomon. Would you read the next four words? Lord loved 
him. She sent words from Nathan, the prophet, to name him Jedediah. You know what Jedediah means? Loved by the Lord. And what we know? Through his union with Bathsheba, in the lineage of Solomon, a man named Joseph was born. That was through Solomon, the firstborn. Joseph. Through the lineage of Nathan, his younger brother, product of David and Bathsheba, a woman named, tell me the name, Mary. Jesus. Tell you what. I don't know if we get to spend time with David in heaven. Tell you what he'll say, though. God's will is good, acceptable, perfect. What do you want? What do you need to do in order to experience it? There it is. Thoughts, attitudes, actions. Make room for God's mercy. It doesn't really depend on your desire or effort. It depends on His mercy. Disobedience is not a disqualifying thing. He extends mercy. Make room for His mercy. Make room for His love. Powerless and godly sinners. And as that changes your thoughts, it changes your attitudes, and change your... And that's why we think of communion. This might seem dangerous. It might seem dangerous. Uh, I don't know, Mike. All this talk about love and mercy. What about judgment? What? It all depends if you want to be a caterpillar or a butterfly. If you want to be conformed or transformed. If you're going to be transformed, you're going to need to change your thoughts and make room for love and mercy. That's the way it works. And you know what? I think Jesus knows that. Because that's why we experience the Lord's Supper. And what this communicates to us, God loved you. How he loved you, he sent his son so that you could be part of his forever family. That's why he did it. So as you take the elements, the bread and the cup, I want you to think about two things. Make room for two things. What would those two things be? God's mercy and God's love. Because that will change your thoughts and change your life. You that we'd like to share with Lyle, if he'd come up, and with all of you. You might see better if you sit down, if you don't mind, and then we'll pray at the end to change things up a little bit. Okay, where are my sign holders? And Taylor, where's Taylor? Lyle has been teaching with us for more years than I can remember, and I usually keep pretty good track. Do you remember, Lyle, how long? You don't remember? (laughs) Working with kids can do that. It blurs time, which is a good thing. It's a good thing, right? And so we thought it would be good if you got to know a little bit about what it was like for the kids and Lyle in the classroom. So we have some people who are going to say a few things about Lyle that help you know who he is and how he teaches. 
Sorry for blocking your view right here. Okay, who would like to go first, Chris? Right? He loves playing soccer with us. He loves the Vikings. He likes us. He's good at soccer. He's funny. He loves kids. That's a really big one. He loves kids. And Carly? He's always happy. Always has a smile. That one right there. And Nick? He hasn't had a haircut for a long time. That's another awesome thing about Lyle, working with kids. He has a great sense of humor, so he brings a lot of fun to the classroom. And we have a message of appreciation for you, Lyle, that's from us, but also it's actually a message from the Bible. So this is a bigger picture. You're not going to ever know from this horizontal, earthly viewpoint how much change you've made, but he does know. Okay. Anytime you miss what's going on back there, you just head on back. <laughs> okay. okay. Okay, we'll close in prayer if you'd like to join us by standing now. God, thank you that you are Father to us, that you provide for us through people such as Lyle and kids, all of us here. Thank you for the way you connect us. We ask that you would um, help us to deal gently with ourselves and as we learn to look at our thoughts of you, that you would remind us of who you are, what you mean to us, and your commitment to us. In Jesus' name, amen.